0: Spring is in the air in New York City, and after a long, cold winter, it's finally safe to give some serious consideration to spending time on the water. And while sometimes it's easy to forget, the Big Apple is surrounded by H2O. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our first guest this morning lives on the water, and we mean that literally. We caught up with him at his home, which also serves as a museum, the Waterfront Barge Museum in Red
1: Hook, Brooklyn, to be exact. I am David Sharps, and I'm the president of the museum and captain of the Lehigh Valley 79, docked here now at our home port in Red Hook, Brooklyn. So tell me about this barge. What's the history here? Well, the barge is a last and only remaining vessel of its kind left afloat. Uh, it's the last of a vestige of era's era when we move goods by railroad. Um, as you know, New York City is an island, a, a port of made up of islands. And uh, prior to the bridges and tunnels that Crisscross this area, it was still a very, very active port. The port was basically founded by its waterways. This barge would have been used to carry general merchandise from a pier around New York City where a ship would have come in with goods and it would have taken it to the railhead terminal over by where today is Liberty State Park. And the home of the Lehigh Valley Railroad operations that could then take goods up into uh, the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. Hence the name of this barge. Yes. Good to realize that there were 13 railroads that served the port of New York, with All the wonderful names of the New York Central and the Erie, the Lackawanna, the Delaware, the Hudson. I mean, all these different lines. The motto of the Port of New York was that every railroad could visit every ship in the Port of New York. So once goods came in, the railroads that were going to be sending their goods went and picked them up with a barge, usually to because you couldn't get there from here if you you know otherwise and they would take their goods with a tug and a barge and take them back to uh the sheds that the trains would pull in where they would be once again loaded by the stevedoring companies that had the longshoremen that would then uh, pack the railroad cars and they would go on their way to uh Uh, south or west or wherever their destination would be. This barge was built in 1914, so it's 101 years old this year. It was built uh, completely out of longleaf yellow pine uh, with all of its structural members at Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And this barge's capacity is to carry 300 tons of cargo. Wow, that's a lot of cargo. It is. It was enough to pack anywhere from 15 to 20 railroad cars with the goods that would then go on their way. So what kinds of goods would have been loaded onto this barge? There would have been barrels of olive oil and vinegar and whiskey and rum and wine. There would have been bundles of cotton and fabric and oakum. There would have been appliances and tools, basically shoes spices, you know, coffee, uh, basically general merchandise that came to the New York area that needed to be transferred from the ship to the rails would have been put on a barge, also known as a lighter. Thus, the era that this was was the Lighterage era. And what years were that primarily? The Lighterage era went from the advent of steam in the 18. 50s, 1860s, up to the very last movement of cargo on a barge was 1984. Containerization is what put this out of business, and that took a while to have be standardized and have a way that they could uh, all embrace the new mode of containerization. The last known shipment was coffee that went from Brooklyn over to the Maxwell House, plant in Hoboken and these did become known as coffee lighters or coffee barges but in fact they carried general merchandise now there were several different types of barges there would have been you know this is a covered deck house barge it's like a floating barn they also had deck scows which were open decks that then could have you know say lumber or bales of some type of product that wouldn't need to be out of the weather Maybe even cars, you know, as they were transported uh, across the river. There was also hold barges that would have carried your aggregates of sand and stone, gravel. And there was also another barge that was a stick lighter barge, which was a floating barge with a crane. Now, barges have no motor by definition. We need a tugboat. To move us around, is there still a tug attached to this barge? Uh, no, no, quite often, you know instead of having a, a engine with every barge, a tugboat would transport or transfer the the barge to the ship that it might be alongside, and it would leave it there and go off and shift other barges throughout the day and many times the, by the end of the day they they would have many barges together that they would then uh, be be transporting back to the, the next step in this long, busy commerce of, of going back and, co- uh, back and forth across our, our water highways with, here within the New York Harbor.
0: So what's the story as to how this barge ended up
1: here in Red Hook, Brooklyn? Well, that's a fun story. I got the barge for a dollar back. Wait, in, a dollar? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, back in 1985, uh, these were being torn out by the Army Corps of Engineers. They laid in various stages of decay along the mud banks of the Hudson River. Containerization had made them obsolete. They were being used for clubhouses, for boat clubs, sea scouts. Some marinas were using them as kind of building a breakwater so that they could then use the sheltered areas as a little harbor for boat clubs but you know people had a given up on wood there is a metal generation of barges after this but because of uh, containerization they were put out of work they no longer needed to transfer a lot of goods across the river it was all being you know taken right off the containers and our transportation mode of choice was our trucks and our bridges and our tunnels. They could go right off the, the ship, they could go onto the back of a truck, and they could go to their final destination. So gone was the the tugs, the barges, the captains, the deckhands, the coopers, the crews. There was hundreds of thousands of, of jobs that were gone in a flash with, with the advent of containerization. So you bought this barge for a buck from who? I bought it from a pile driver, um, a dock builder, who was using it as storage. Uh, He had had it for, I think, probably about 10 years or so, and it had been sunk the last couple years, maybe seven years. It had filled with 300 tons of mud. Um, You have to realize I had never run a power tool in my life
0: So what inspired you then to
1: buy a barge? Well, my roots take me up to the Appalachian Mountains out in the western part of Maryland, close to West Virginia, just about seven miles away from West Virginia. And my ticket out of the hills, so to speak, was to teach myself to juggle. And as an entertainer, I teamed up with a partner and we took our act of serious foolishness to the high seas. And I had a wide-eyed kid at 21. I saw about 40 different countries coming in by water and uh, traveling and later went to school in Paris and befriended a captain who had a barge that needed a caretaker while he was gone. And so I looked after a barge there. And all of this was really before I lived in any city in the States. Uh, I left Paris and came to the States and came through New York City. And it wasn't long before I had a a boat that somebody had given to me, because I was asking if anybody had a, you know, a boat that was looking for a caretaker, and it as it turned out, somebody gave me a boat, and I was looking for a place to put that vessel, uh, and in the process of trying to find the place for that boat, I met a film producer who was looking for a caretaker of a barge not unlike this one. It was a, we affectionately called the mud puppy, sunk in the mud, and... and uh, when the tide came in, it'd fill the hall, and lo and behold, progress came over in North Bergen, New Jersey, and and it was, listen, kid, you know, you're out of here. We, we, we're we going to build rises and a marina and this and that, and, and you're not wanted. So at that time, we founded the Hudson Waterfront Museum, and we wanted to be a part of progress. We didn't want to be a consequence of progress. We loved... Uh, what we were doing where we were the the history the richness of the waterfront and this was a bunch of tug and barge dwellers who were still living on the river in an area that was kind of desolate but you know was looking at development so it was at that time that I was elected president and everybody else floated away from this place we were being evicted from and it was at that time that one of the members of the group who was, uh, owned a tugboat told me about the 79, and I went up and met uh, Harry Shellhorn, who sold it to me for a dollar and uh, and other considerations, and pretty soon I was uh, the young kid that had a barge with the dream. It took me two years to float the barge and get the 300 tons of mud out of it and, and uh, get it afloat, and then we started uh, the campaign of finding a place to put it, my shipwright at the time uh, lived in Hoboken, and we got uh, at part of Mayor Pasculi's uh, waterfront access plan and moved it to Hoboken, where the first day I opened my doors, we had a thousand people come across the Wow, a thousand people uh, the first day. We were at a waterfront festival, and life was good. Um, but it turned out that Hoboken didn't own their waterfront land, and New Jersey Transit did, and I think they were concerned that everybody liked us so much that, you know, we weren't paying a rent, and what were they going to do if they had a floating restaurant that wanted to come in, or a Gila port, or whatever, and they didn't have a lot of accessible and uh, waterfront that was a docking space, so they asked us to move on. The mayor could only cash in so many chips, and being a, a well-loved organization, we, we sadly left Red uh, Hoboken in 1989, I guess, and went to Liberty State Park where, lo and behold, this barge had its home port and where it operated out of. So even before the Liberty State Park was there, we had pictures of our barge operating out of there. It was a nice historical destination for people that were coming to the park as they were going to the on the circle line then to go to the Statue of Liberty, they could slip into the museum and, and see some authentic piece of New York's history, but with uh, Reaganomics, they were looking to privatize their waterfront. They let me know that a marina was coming in and that I would be talking to the marina, and the the park would no longer be able to let us dock there. And of course, marinas charge by the foot. Us being 100 feet long, we're probably going to be looking at a very high price. So I started looking around again. Went back to the water, uh, the Edgewater mud flats. Did some work on it again. And it was at that time when I found uh, what has been our largest patron. It was Greg O'Connell, who owns the property down here in uh, Red Hook and what is now the, the O'Connell organization. And I teamed up with uh, them as one of their guests at, at their pier and started to be a beacon that brought tens of thousands of people to to Red Hook. Uh, when we came in 1994 there was you know a pack of wild dogs that was running around that ate three of our cats. You couldn't get Chinese food down here. There was really no transportation to to speak of, except for the B61 or driving. The lots were full of abandoned cars or or cars that were taken over by the sheriff and being sold. Um, it was, I think, more than a badlands. It was a no man's land. Red Hook did hit the kind of a a low time shortly before we came in 94, but it was starting to bring itself back together, and certainly the uh, Greg O'Connell was a huge part of uh, building the outback here with a aggressive uh, historic preservation project. Uh, we fit in nice in that we were bringing people to the waterfront. They were Uh, choosing to have a waterfront access plan that even though it's private property, they were welcoming the public here. A museum was a nice fit, so not only would they come here, but we could be an anchor where there could be activity. Um, The idea of school groups, the idea of cultural programs, um, the idea of just uh, letting people know a little bit more about the history of what this great waterfront was in the past and letting it be a part of the vision for the future.
0: Now today, this barge is not only a museum. This is also
1: your home. You live on this barge. That's correct. Uh, this is. Well, I'm the owner and the caretaker and the night watchman and, uh, uh, you know, kind of keeping this this alive. So, yeah, that's uh, one of the, the best things that I get from it is to be able to... Uh, to be here, uh, it affords me the, the chance in the midst of a storm like Hurricane Sandy to, to be sure that somebody's here and somebody's uh, looking after the lines and uh, taking care of uh, whatever needs to be taken care of. The best insurance one can have is a, on a boat is a good work, working pump and somebody that knows how to, how to fight a fire and work a pump and, and call for help when you need it. David, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. That
0: was David Sharps. He's the president and captain of the Lehigh Valley 79 Barge in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Find out more about the Waterfront Barge Museum at waterfrontmuseum.org. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Polarkey. Our next guests also spend a lot of time on the water in New York City and beyond. They're members of the City Island Yacht Club in the Bronx. I caught up with them at the club recently to talk about cruising and racing on a sailboat.
2: My name is Brad Stone. I've been a member of the club here since 2001. Started racing here in the late 90s. Um, Got on the board of directors, rose up the ranks, unfortunately raised my hand a number of times and uh, eventually became the Commodore and now I'm. Kind of retired from that. So what does it mean to be the Commodore? Basically in charge of the club. Uh, It's kind of the president, uh, oversee the running of the club, make sure the board performs its duties and try to keep everybody happy here.
3: My name is Joyce Mulcahy. I've been a social member here for about four years and I now uh, actually moved to City Island to pursue uh, racing and sailing.
4: My name is David Shulman. I'm a former vice Commodore of this club. I joined the club uh, around 1995, but I've been associated with this club since the late 70s when I learned to sail.
0: The City Island Yacht Club has a very rich history. Who here can share a little bit of that
2: history with us? I believe it was um, four to six gentlemen here in 1906 who decided to uh, form a club. Um, I think they went out uh, generally to race. Out here in East Chester Bay, they decided to start a club in the area. Uh, I think the club was incorporated in 1907, and uh, they started gathering members uh, for sport, fun, uh, camaraderie, that sort of thing. We had several moves on the island of of clubhouse location. Uh, We used to be to the east. Then I think we were next door to the south. And now we've been in this location uh, quite a long time, maybe since the 30s, I think.
0: David, you said you started to sail in the 70s, right? What brought you to
4: sailing? Sailing is the last of the water sports for me. I was uh, a swimmer and a diver in college. I was a certified scuba diver. I've been powerboating since I could just barely walk. And I decided I'd start to learn to sail in 1977. And at that first experience, I had a very interesting conversation with a woman, and the conversation essentially revolved around how you how do you learn to handle a boat when the weather can change while you're out there? And she said to me, well, the only way you can do that is to go out sailboat racing because you'll be with a whole pile of people who know a lot more than you, and uh, you'll sit around and you'll hold the boat down and you'll learn a little bit and you'll spend a lot of time going to classes and you'll pick up the skills necessary so that if the weather goes bad you don't kill yourself or hurt yourself or hurt somebody else. Did you grow up in New York City? Yeah I'm a Brooklyn kid and um, I was swimming from uh, a young age out in Coney Island and uh, then I went to college and in college I swam and dove and uh, I just decided that uh, sailing was a great thing to do because it was something that you could do and you could participate in as you got more and more mature and less and less uh, into the teenage years up through the age of 30 when everybody's at their athletic peak and uh, you could still move on in the sport and continue to do it well into your middle and later years in life.
0: So Joyce, it sounds like you were smitten pretty, pretty quickly with sailing.
3: I was. I was. I had some relatives on the West Coast that introduced me to sailing, but quite honestly, they mainly sat in the marina and drank wine. So I thought, there's got to be more to this. And uh, I'm, although we, we do that too at the mooring, but uh, it's more dark and stormy than, than wine out in, you know, it's California. So, but uh, I was smitten. I came for the meeting, and it was the Eastchester Bay Yacht Racing Association meeting. And it was held here, actually, at City Island Yacht Club about, I want to say, about seven years ago. And I I came, it was a very stormy night, and I, it was on 95, it was, it was just horrible traffic, and I almost turned around about three or four times, because I lived on, at Long Island, uh, on Long Island at the time. And uh, I got here, and they basically said, look, if you have an interest, and you're willing to, you know, for the... For the first uh, season or so, learn and, and pay attention when everybody else is doing. Then, then by all means, if you can get to the dock by six or six thirty, we can get you on a boat, and that's exactly what happened. And so, I've since uh, raced on Brad's boat as Wild Child, and I've and Brad is an excellent captain, and uh, Dave is a great navigator. I've been with him on a race too. So. Yeah, and my, uh, I guess my skill is just being a little bit uh, nimble on the boat and, and hopping around from uh, position to position, perhaps. So.
0: so the name of your boat, Brad, is Wild Child. What does that say about the
1: captain? It says
2: it, says it all.
1: No, it I mean,
2: <laughs> the name came about because it, we're not that wild. But I think um, my wife and I, now my wife, uh, decided that there's a little wild child in all of us. Uh, regardless of how polished the exterior is. And I think uh, particularly racing on a boat and that kind of excitement sort of brings that out. You know, so that's how the name came about.
0: I have to admit, I don't know the first thing about sailing, so who wants to give me a primer? What's involved for a beginner?
4: For a very, very long time in the history of boating, people were not able to sail a boat upwind. And when we all learned our history as uh, students in the elementary schools, Uh, we somehow have the impression that boats go where they want to go. But the truth of the matter is that the boats followed the cycles of current in, at least from my understanding of history, primarily in the Atlantic Ocean, which is a clockwise circle. And so guys would get on boats, and they'd sit there and let the current carry them, and if the wind was blowing in the right direction, that was terrific. And through a lot of the sailing history, boats could not go upwind. The ability of a boat to go somewhat close to directly upwind is a relatively recent development, and it's really changed sailing around a lot because you are not limited into going downwind and then just sitting around for days and days and days hoping that the current is going to carry you where you want to go. And so as sailing has evolved, uh, the, the ability of boats to move uh, in the direction they'd like to go has evolved tremendously. Uh, if it wasn't for the uh, advent of internal combustion and the fact that um, people now have motors to drive boats around, we'd still be dependent upon our ability to sail somewhat in the direction of the wind or away from the direction of the wind.
3: I'd say what's what's and Dave, you can I'm sure test too and Brad is, as you know, both of them having been captains, is that. Uh, Basically, you sit. A, you, you have to learn to be patient uh, with yourself, I think, and be willing to learn a lot, and be willing to be on maybe one position that isn't as glamorous, which is called rail meat. And uh, well, it's not glamorous in sailing, it may be glamorous in some other realm. Rail meat, huh? Yes. Uh, so mm-hmm. rail meat is you bring ballast to the boat. So where the wind wants to, you know, uh, turn you a bit sideways, you sit on the rail of the boat, and so you can bring that side of the boat down. So generally the crew, when we're not in our positions, we're on the rail. But uh, for the first year uh, learning, I was rail meet on the boat. and But I really didn't mind because I wanted to listen and learn and really learn every position on the boat. So each year I sort of went from one position to another position to another position. So now I feel if... Uh, more well-rounded in, in knowing exactly, because sometimes people get in one position on a boat and they just really know that position. So uh, I think it's probably a good idea to know exactly what's going on with everyone.
0: So Sailing Brad has a language
2: all its own, it seems, rail meat. I learned something new today. Absolutely. And some rail meat is better looking than other rail meat. <laughs> I won't say that Joyce is absolutely very attractive rail meat, but uh, yeah, you've, uh, it's got a it's got a nomenclature that's pretty wild. There are, there are lines, uh, there are not ropes, you know, that sort of thing. A rope becomes a line when it's cut and put on a boat. Uh, every aspect of it has its own language, and it's, it's pretty steeped in history. Starboard and port, you know, starboard came from years and years ago when the, the steering rudder was on the right side of the boat because the other side was where they pulled up to port, you know, so that's where they got that. and there's quite a language, and it's really fascinating. And the entire and, and anybody who's sailing, in my case, I do have a crew of seven. We all have to know the language because this is how the individuals become a team, and a team ex- executes maneuvers. And hopefully, you, you know, you do well in a race.
0: How different is it to be out there just recreationally, taking in the sights of the city on a boat sailing versus racing?
2: Well, racing is certainly more intense. You have a very specific goal in mind, a destination, usually two or three involved in a race, and you're trying to get around that course as fast as possible. And just sailing, which we've done plenty of, too, just taking a nice sail down under the Throgs Neck Bridge and then down under the Whitestone Bridge and going past uh, LaGuardia Airport, the planes coming in over your head, or uh, the city's fascinating. I've certainly gone down the East River and up the Hudson, and that's, that's really a unique experience to see the city from the water. And if we turn east, you've got several bays. There's 125 miles of Long Island Sound, all sorts of fascinating places to go. Of course, incredible homes to see along the Gold Coast, but uh, there's also a lot of nature, beauty, um, interesting places to visit, maritime museums, restaurants, but all the way out to Montauk. You
0: know. Joyce, is the racing very competitive?
3: It is competitive, and I think it depends on the personality of the team or the crew on the boat as well. But... Uh, I think we've all raced in uh, ocean races, too, around Long Island, around Block Island. Those are the two that I've done, and those are two, 200 and somewhat, or just about 200 miles, I think, is one, and just over is, uh, not, is 200 miles is another. And it is competitive, and I think that's how we uh, enjoy it so much. I think when you become part of a crew, and as Brad said, you... Become quite symbiotic with one another. Did you say that? I don't remember you saying that. I think that was me. I but, didn't use that word. Yeah. That was a <laughs> but, great word, though. But, uh, Go ahead. But uh, <laughs> I think you have to in order to uh, be able to win races, and and you know, I mean, of course, we all when we're on a boat, we want to get out there and we want to win. That's that's for sure. But I think when I mention the personality of a boat, is if you don't, you know, does that congratulatory beer still pop open at the end of the race or is the captain scowling and you know you wait can't wait to scurry off with your tail between your legs so but Brad certainly is uh, the beer does crack open congratulatory whether it's whether it's first place or something else Uh, right (laughs) so
0: what kinds of bonds do you form it sounds like you form very very strong bonds being out there on a boat with others
3: I think you do. I think, and I don't think it really takes too long. Well, I think part of that too is being a part of City Island Yacht Club. So the community sense is already there because we know a lot of, you know, we know one another. Although people who race are from all, all different yacht clubs in the area. But I, I certainly think, and what I like about it personally is it's individuals kind of of all ages, you know, in your 20s and up into your 70s and even beyond, certainly.
0: Dave, how many friends have you made over the years through sailing? A
4: lot of friends.
0: Dave, thanks so much for your time.
4: Well, thank you for having us. Um, I just uh, would like to point out that we've got a great website. Um, The address is www.cityislandyc.org, okay, and there's an awful lot of information there. And if you get on that website, it probably will tempt you to come down and join us. And I'm certain that uh, almost any weekend if you come down, somebody will show you around. We're looking forward to having a great spring and summer.
0: Joyce, thanks so much.
2: Thank you, George. And
0: Brad, thank you.
2: Thanks very much, George.
0: Brad Stone, Joyce Mulcahy, and David Shulman are with the City Island Yacht Club in the Bronx. You can find them online at cityislandyachtclub.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Bodarkey. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. Have a great weekend.